Our lesson of the day is Second John. Listen carefully to God's Word. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give You thanks for Your Word. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us through Your Son and that You have given us the right to become children of God through faith in Him. May Your Spirit be with us now to sanctify us, to enlighten us, to give us faith to receive Your Word and be transformed by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, several weeks ago, uh, when we, when I finished my uh, series on First John, I remarked that that was sort of a strange way to end the letter. He doesn't give any greetings. He doesn't drop any names. He doesn't give updates about his travel plans. He doesn't say goodbye. Sort of a strange way to end a letter. Second John looks a lot more like what you would expect a letter to look like. But it's like John is writing in code. Well, excuse me, I'm assuming, right? John doesn't even tell us his name. It is John. I'll give you that uh, freebie right now. It is John. John assumes uh, he's, it looks like he's writing in code the elder to the elect lady. It's like something you would, you know... A message that would be intercepted by the, you know, the CIA or something, some kind of, you know, secret message being delivered, and maybe that's exactly what was going on. Maybe uh, John had to write in sort of code to protect himself and the church that he was writing to. But it's sort of a, an odd little letter. Unfortunately, 
Second uh, John doesn't get much airtime. Um, in fact, this may be the best sermon on Second John you have ever heard. And that's not saying anything about me, unfortunately. There are a few initial questions that uh, are raised right off the bat in uh, this, in the first verse, but also in the last verse. Who is the elder? Who is the elect lady? And who are her children? It's a shame that Second uh, John um, doesn't get um, too much attention because in this little letter. Uh, in these answering these three questions about the identity of these people or these groups, I think that you will find some very rich, very insightful and profound truths about what it means to be the church, what it means to be the people of God. So let's start first with the elder. That's, that's how John identifies himself. People have... Uh, you know, made other guesses as to who this could be, but if you've read First John and then you read Second John, if you read John's Gospel, if you read the Book of Revelation, it's all John. It's it's John all over this book. His fingerprints are are all over it. The the words that he uses, the phrases that he uses, uh, everything is uh, unanimous that it's John who is writing this. So he calls himself the Elder. He could call himself a lot of things. He could call himself apostle. That sounds more, you know, high and mighty than elder. He he could call himself the one who Christ loved. Now that would pull some weight maybe, right? He was the one referred to in the book of John as the one whom Christ loved, the one reclining on Jesus' breast at the last supper. He could have referred to himself by a lot of other titles, but he identifies himself simply as the elder, the overseer. Now, this terminology, let's just back up and try to get a big picture snapshot of what um, is maybe informing John's use of this term, the elder, the overseer, the presbyter. This is where we get the term presbyterian for elders, presbyteros. Under the Old Covenant, God appointed overseers uh, for the people of Israel. And as you read through uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, you get the distinct impression that the Old Covenant elders, the Old Covenant overseers, were sort of like babysitters trying to enforce the parents' rules on an unruly child. Um, You have Moses uh, and the law in Israel's infancy. Israel as a child doing all of these childish things. Moses is the overseer uh, enforcing uh, God's law, enforcing the rules. Then you have the... But you see Israel begin to mature a little bit. You have the judges and the kings. Those are sort of the teenage years. The rebellious years in some ways. Uh, there were some dark times, but there were some good times in the judges, in the times of the kings. And then you have the prophets, and you have the exile. You have Israel growing up. Uh, God takes His people into exile, but then He brings them back. 
and blesses them and restores them and blesses them with greater uh, power, greater outreach. The prophets began to speak to the nations. This The scope of the kingdom begins to widen. You begin to see glimmers of fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. But you get the sense in the Old Covenant that most of those people appointed by God to lead the people of Israel were, at most of the time, they were pretty frustrated with the people. They were pretty exasperated with God's people because they were stubborn and they were foolish and they kept turning away from God. You get the sense that they didn't want God to kill the nation but there were a lot of times that they wanted to kill the nation, right? You, you parents may understand this. That you wouldn't want anybody to harm your children. But there are those moments, <laughs> right, where you're like, boy, I would, I would defend my kid against anybody. But right now, <laughs> I'm going to have to go take a breather. Um, this is the kind of tone, this is the sort of sense that you get with uh, the overseers, the shepherds, the elders, using that term loosely, uh, in the Old Covenant. But when we get to the New Testament, that tone seems to shift pretty dramatically. Think about how the apostles, especially Paul, who you know has written most you know, half the New Testament, think about the ways that he addresses God's people. Think about the way that he addresses the churches, that he confronts and deals with sin. The apostles and the other writers of the New Testament, they, they got all up in arms when somebody was trying to come in and bring false teaching or lead the people astray from the Gospel. But when the churches themselves were caught up in sin, no matter how grave, no matter how serious, they were always deeply affectionate. They were always deeply compassionate. They never wanted... I mean, Paul sort of threatens the Corinthians with a stick, but he gives them that warning, right? <laughs> the prophets never gave them that warning. Well, they did. They got the warning, but uh, usually the people didn't listen. Listen to how Paul addresses some of the, the churches. And many of these, keep in mind, many of these were very, very serious situations where the gospel was at stake, where all manner of evil was being tolerated. Listen to how uh, the, the churches are addressed. Galatians 4, 19 and 20. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. 1 Corinthians 4. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 2 Corinthians 2. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Philippians 1, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, 
my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And then 1 Thessalonians 2, one of the, one of the most affectionate uh, books in the New Testament that has some of the mo- more family language than almost any other book. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, not with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. I've been skipping down a few verses. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The apostles, and here we've just sampled Paul, but you see that in John. John's letter, 1 John, this letter, 2 John, is just chock full of language. You are my beloved children. I am like a father to you. I'm like a a mother giving birth to a baby until Christ is formed in you. I longed for you and I cared for you like a nursing mother with her own children. This is the affection that the apostles, the elders have for the churches, for God's people. If you think about it, even the harshest of the New Testament letters is pretty mild compared to the Old Covenant prophets. The apostles, as I said, usually are only blasting the false teachers. Usually they're only coming after and denouncing uh, divisive people and false teachers. They are tender and long-suffering with even the weakest of children in the church. I think this gives you and I a pattern to imitate in confronting sin in our families in our with our spouse with our children with with one another as we are called to do in the gospel we can be christians can be some of the worst around when it comes to shooting our own wounded we're far too quick to write somebody off we're far too eager to label somebody and be done with them And as parents, we should be tender with our own children and not overly harsh with them. Because that's not how God deals with us. That's not God's way of dealing with us, and that's not how we are called to deal with others. If you take a hammer and you try to remove sin from somebody else's life with a hammer, you're usually only going to drive it deeper in. Usually, if you're going to remove something that's buried very deeply, it's going to take a lot of care and a lot of tenderness, and a a skillful surgeon doesn't use a hammer very often. Maybe for some operations. But if he's trying to remove something deadly, if he's trying to remove a tumor or a disease or something like that, he's going to use great skill and great care and be very tender and only make the cuts that he needs to make. This is the attitude of John toward his people. And this is the attitude 
which God calls us to, to deal with one another, to deal with sin in the church. The apostles and elders are, like we read in John 1, are very quick, like John the Baptist. I am not the Christ, right? Everybody's trying to, you know, asking John the Baptist, are you the Christ? No, absolutely not. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. This is the humility of these men, these apostles and elders. Instead of acting like babysitters uh, with God's little children in the Old Covenant, the elders and the apostles in the New Covenant are more like bodyguards uh, for God's bride. They're more like advisors to God's grown child. They're not uh, beating over the head. They're not talking down to you usually. They're more protecting. They're more guarding. They're more shepherding and, and encouraging and advising. They're getting ready the, the Old Covenant overseers were getting God's people ready for the first coming of Christ. The apostles and the elders in the church today are getting the church ready for the final coming of Christ. And there's this expectation uh, that Christ is coming and we need to be ready for His return. John says, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face that our joy may be made complete. They want to be with God's people just as Christ is coming to take His bride home. The apostles, the elders, imitate that same desire. The same is true for the pastors and elders of this church. God has placed pastors and elders in this congregation and in every other congregation for the church's sanctification, for your edification. Pastors and elders are called to protect God's bride against the attacks of the enemy. We're instructed to encourage, to exhort, to equip God's people for service in the kingdom. We're here as the representatives of Christ to speak on His behalf, to encourage and protect the flock of God. So even though John is like a father to these churches, even though he is like uh, they are his children in the gospel, he writes to the church as a lady, as a grown woman whose husband he represents. This is why he uses the term the elect lady. So he he envisions the church, the, the congregation, as an elect lady, a particular congregation of believers, because this elect lady has an elect sister. So it must be a particular congregation of believers. And her children are the individual members of the church. He uses almost all personal pronouns throughout the letter. So he's talking to a group of people, not just one person. So why would he use this term? Like we said, maybe it's code language. Maybe he is protecting his identity. Maybe he's protecting their identity uh, in case the letter was intercepted or something. Uh, these were rough times coming up to 70 AD uh, and the tensions were growing between Rome and, and Jerusalem. But I think more than that, John uses this language intentionally of an elect lady 
to remind God's people who they are and whose they are. Let's look at this theme of maturation again that we talked about with the role of God's overseers. God's people also mature. And so, if you look throughout the Scriptures, God's people are many times referred to as a woman. Yes, God's son. is Israel is God's son. And there are many references to God's people uh, reaching full manhood, full maturity. But God's people are very often referred to as a woman. The prophets in the Old Testament refer to uh, God's people as the daughter of Jerusalem. Jeremiah re- refers to God's people as his bride. Ezekiel has this incredibly powerful description of God rescuing Israel, this young virgin, taking her under his wing, uh, growing her up, marrying her, and then she turns out to be an adulterous woman. Hosea has this, this beautiful picture of, of God pursuing his unfaithful bride and wooing her, her back to himself. And you have this theme uh, running throughout the Old Testament. Well, it's no surprise that we find the same theme continued and developed uh, in the New, New Testament. Paul refers to, the, he says to the Corinthians that he betrothed them to one husband, to Christ. The church is pictured as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 is the famous chapter about Christ and the church being marriage being a picture of that. Of course, Revelation ends with this incredible vision of the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is the church. That's the church coming down from heaven. The angel says, come, let me show you the bride in preparation for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And of course, as the Reformers love to point out, Paul refers to the church in Galatians 4 as the mother of the faithful. Paul says that she is our mother. The new Jerusalem is our mother. And the Reformers love to say that no one can have God as his father unless he has the church for his mother. So you see the maturation of God's people. You have this wild and unruly woman in the Old Testament who won't remain faithful to her husband, but when Christ comes, He secures and matures His bride to this pure and spotless, radiant bride that we see pictured in anticipation of the last day when we will be made fully like Him. But the Greek word here for lady is not just a grown woman. It's the feminine form of the word Lord. Curios, we sing Curie, that's the Latin form of Lord. Curios is the Greek word for Lord. The, the word here for lady is curia. It's like in the old country. It's like in England where you have lords and ladies. It's a title of nobility. And I think that this is in exactly the idea that John is trying to convey. That the church has a Lord, Jesus, and the church is herself a lady who rules and reigns and shares a house with her Lord. Jesus is a king, but He has a queen. His people, the church, are His royal lady. This is the incredible 
truth of God's Word about us, about you, that you are the elect lady. That should not offend you guys. That's the highest compliment you could have received. But unfortunately, as we see in John's letter, not all of God's children are living as God's children ought to live. John says in verse 4, he says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now we've already said that the children, the elect lady is the church, is the congregation as a whole, and her children are the individual members of the church. And here we find an interesting and very important distinction that raises all sorts of very deep and mysterious questions that I will not pretend to try to address this morning. But we can't deny what John says and we can't lose the, uh, the point that he's trying to make. Think about what this means. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. That means that there are some within the church who are not walking in the truth. But they are still children. Think about that. John has no insight into the decrees of God. He has no insight into the hidden will of God. He doesn't know who's elect. He doesn't know who's going to persevere until the end. But he calls the church the elect lady. The whole church. He doesn't distinguish. The elect lady. Some of the children are walking in truth. Some of them are not. But the church is still the elect lady. And this is the pattern throughout the New Testament. The apostles address the entire church as elect, as chosen, as God's people. Even though many of them are in a huge mess. Even though many of them are in sin. Corinthians, the Corinth, the, the Corinthian church, if anybody, if you thought anybody was going to get uh, left out of this category, this would be the one. But Paul says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. The Corinthians, for heaven's sake. Colossians 3, Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You are God's chosen ones. You are God's elect. 1 Thessalonians, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. You are chosen, elect. Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. This is the way that the New Testament speaks. This is the way the apostles speak to the churches. And we need to take seriously 
this this fact. But we can't lose, we should not let questions and curiosities, as important as they are, detract us from the point that John is making. The point is that sometimes children walk, sometimes God's children walk faithfully. Sometimes God's children are wandering and straying. But every member of the church is God's child nonetheless. Maybe a bad child, maybe a rebellious child at times, but a child of God nonetheless. The apostles confronted sinners in the church not by causing them to question their salvation, but by affirming it. They warned them of the dangers of falling away because they actually had much to lose. Instead of telling uh, the churches, instead of confronting sinners and trying to get them to make sure that they were really saved, the apostles grabbed them, snatched them up by their baptisms and told them not to receive God's grace in vain. The biblical way of dealing with sin in the church and in our own lives and in our families is not by writing people off as imposters or they were never really saved or something like that, but by calling people to be who they are in Christ. We don't live like God's children so that He'll let us into His family. We live like God's children because He's already adopted us. The apostles never say, you, you guys need to start, you guys need to shape up because God's not going to let you into His family that way. The apostles are always saying, you are God's family. And you need to start acting like So, Trinity Presbyterian Church, rejoice that you are the elect lady of God. You are the bride of Christ, the royal lady who rules God's kingdom under the headship of your husband, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You've been chosen, redeemed, sanctified, and set apart as the beloved of God. The Father has chosen you as a bride for His Son. The Son who laid down His life for you. The Spirit is preparing you for the full consummation of your union with Christ, who is your bridegroom. And to each one of you, all of you who have been baptized into Christ, never forget that you are children and members of God's household. You've been baptized into Christ and have received the spirit of adoption that you can cry out, Abba, Father. Each of you have been made a son or daughter of God to live as members of His family and to share in the fullness of love and joy with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Because you've been bought with a price, because you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because you are promised an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, because you are God's children, you must walk 
in the truth. You must be imitators of God as beloved children. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the glorious promises of Your Gospel. We thank You that You have adopted us as Your children. We thank You that You have laid down Your life for Your bride and made us Your beloved in Christ. Sanctify us, O God. Rid us of all sin and impurity and defilement that we would be without spot or wrinkle and found faithful at the coming of our Lord. Help us to be who we are in Christ that we might adorn our baptisms, that we might be faithful to You with hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving. This we pray through Christ our Savior. Amen.